Welcome to episode 11 of The Global Lab. I'm Dr. Anna Fry. And I am Dr. Martin Zolzolstrup. Welcome back. So, Martin, I hear uh, one of your MRes students has been pretty busy this week. Yeah, Martin Dittus, he's one of the students on our MRes course, has been, uh, well, he's been um, down at Occupy London for a while at the uh, at St Paul's. He was in the Guardian on the Communist Free section. Yeah, I think he was, actually. Yeah, Film. I didn't actually read that article, but uh, thanks for, for drawing my attention <laughs> to that, Hannah Fry. Uh, but, um, so, a few days ago, he actually organised uh, for Manuel Castells, uh, the uh, Spanish academic, to he's come and visit. He's the sociologist, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, well, apparently he's the fifth most cited social sciences scholar in the world. Wow, pretty impressive. And a few days ago, he was uh, at LSE mm-hmm. uh, talking to them. Yeah, uh, but uh, our, 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 our student Martin Dittus arranged for him to go down to the Occupy London site and talk to the people there. Um, so, what kind of things was he saying? Well, um, he's sort of uh, the, the way I know him is through talking about the empowerment of the internet mm-hmm. and the way that you know the media can often portray the internet as a sort of scary place. Mm. You go on Facebook and you lose all the information mm. and you get, get bullied and, and the, yeah, yeah. there's a pedophile watching your every move and it's not very very pleasant. Uh, whereas he's he, he, he said that actually research tends to show the internet's very empowering, mm-hmm. perhaps you connect with other people, form communities. Yeah, like some the Clapham Junction um, example after the London riots where um, on Twitter they organise a great big group to go and clean up Clapham Junction. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a great example. Yeah, yeah. So you're actually using it in a really positive way to mm-hmm. to get people down to one place in that case, mm-hmm. or the or, or the um, Arab Spring. Yeah, of course. Using social media and so on to, mm-hmm. to organise uh, protests. Uh, so um, you know, he's got this kind of concept of empowerment uh, uh, um, through through communities, through the internet, through through modern technologies, and uh, um, I think his his interests are more general than that. Mm-hmm. Now, what he was talking about uh, at uh, Occupy London was. Um, the, the current crisis, the sort of financial crisis, and yeah. he he described it as leading the sort of crisis in financial institutions like banks and investment uh, organisations, leading to a genuine economic crisis, mm-hmm. uh, leading to a to a social crisis, leading to a political crisis. Mm. So, what kind of uh, options to get out of the current crisis was he offering? Well, his uh, his kind of. He comes from a fairly left-wing perspective. I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say uh, his his analysis of the situation at present was that, um, that, that, that there's a political crisis because the the politi- political class is serving the interests of uh, of the sort of uh, elite groups with money and power, mm-hmm. media and, and industry and so on, and, and financial institutions, and that's really failing people in a really catastrophic way at the moment. Yeah, agreed. But um, I think uh, to offer something. Serious, you've got to kind of work within the constraints of reality and kind of have a cohesion or, or some kind of offer some kind of alternative rather than just talk about what's going on and what's bad and whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, uh, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think um, uh, Occupy London is at an early stage, and, and the Occupy movement is at mm. a relatively early stage. It's really only been a few months since yeah, it course. started. Um, and I don't know, I don't think anyone knows how it's going to shape up. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think having people like uh, Castells go and speak to them, and, uh, and, and yeah, yeah, people who've got real sort of uh, scholarly heft behind them will help to inform that agenda a lot. But yeah. one of the things he talked about, which uh, was asked in the Q and A, what advice would he give people? Mm-hmm. Um, he's travelled around the world to different occupy occupy sites, different occupations, um, and he's uh, one of the things he said, which he thought was very important, was non violence. Yeah, uh, not because he seems to be a particular pacifist. But because if you're a violent organisation, you immediately get marginalised by the mainstream media. Yeah, and people don't want to be associated with you. It gives you legitimacy if you uh, can be seen as upstanding citizens, I suppose. Yeah, it worked reasonably well for Gandhi in 47. Yeah, yeah. Martin Luther King did all right. Yeah. 
So, talking of the link between uh, academia and policy, we had a visitor here to CASA the other day, um, Sarah Williams, who's the director of Columbia's Spatial Information Design Lab. She's been talking about lots of different projects that she's been doing with her group, um, but one of the ones which I found most interesting was some work that she's done with uh, Laura Kurgan, I think that's how you okay. pronounce her name, yeah. um, which is, uh, they titled it Million Dollar Blocks. Right. So, um, the idea is that over the past few years in America, the prison population is completely soared, right. but the cost to incarcerate um, someone within state prison is around $30,000 per year. So, of course, mm. it's a huge cost to the taxpayer to... Um, to keep these people yeah, exactly. in prison, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So the idea is that they want to kind of reverse the thinking of the process um, and look at the phenomena in a different way. So start thinking about where all these prisoners are actually coming from. Okay. And what they found is they've done, you know, a lot of uh, geospatial analysis, a lot of GIS, and particularly in the New York area, um, and have found that, uh, I mean, as I guess one would expect... Of the, uh, you know, a big chunk of these convicts came from um, really small areas within the city, the poorest areas right, in the okay. city. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, in fact, often there would be the case where you'd have a number of convicts just from one residential block. Yeah. And where the total cost of incarceration exceeded a million dollars, that's how they, you know, started calling these these million dollar blocks. Oh, so if there's, I mean, so that would be what, like thirty. 30 or 40 people from that block are incarcerated. Yeah, although then I think it's less because it's over the whole term of their sentence, ah, but yes, okay. if you see what I mean. So oh, it could see, right. only be five or so, for yeah. example. But then but that block is paying a million dollars. Yes, exactly, to, just to, to, to keep their criminals away from them and then come back probably more damaged than they left, you know. Surely there's a better well, way to spend so. that money. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I mean, there was one example that they had where um, the block was over $5 million. Wow. And when you're spending such, you know, an enormous amount of money on a really concentrated area, mm. it does raise the question of surely, you know, we could, you know, as you say, um, invest this much better. So what do they do with that Information. Uh, so uh, I think a few different states in America have, uh, you know, taken all this um, research on board, and in fact, Connecticut have um, started to uh, adjust their um, prison budget, taking dollars out of the, uh, you know, kind of incarceration or prison budget rather, and yeah. start spending it on, um, you know, social well-being in these really poor areas. I guess that's the ultimate goal, really, as an academic. You want your research to actually have a genuine impact in the real world, and this is a really mm. great example of, of something that's actually been done and worked. Oh, that's obviously something we think about quite a lot at CASA. So we've got um, a project uh, here called uh, Gemma. Mm -hmm. What does uh, Gemma stand for? Uh, good question. It's uh, <laughs> Geographical Engine for Mass Mapping Applications. Nicely uh, remembered. Thank you very much. Uh, and hopefully we'll have one of the researchers on to talk about it uh, uh, on a, one of our episodes of the podcast. Uh, but that's um, uh, Stephen Gray, Richard Milton and Ollie O'Brien have worked on that. And... Uh, Earlier this month, they won a JISC Geo Developer Award for mm -hmm. their work on mm -hmm. that. Very impressive. Uh, so just to, to just as a kind of quick overview, it's essentially a tool that allows anybody to create maps, mm -hmm. um, and it ties into things that Castle have done in the past, like Survey Mapper. Mm -hmm. So it enab enables people to create surveys and you know sort of poll their neighbours for you know noise pollution or antisocial behaviour or or something you know a bit more fun than that if you want to. Um, so is this an online tool then? Or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Software? It's, it's, it's web-based and you don't need to have any specialised software on your computer to use it. Uh, and it's really geared towards, um, you know, the, the non-geographer, not a specialist, just just a, you know, layperson, if you yeah. like. Um, and so JISC, which is this, uh, this organisation uh, which is sort of interested in using digital tools. Uh, I know it through digital tools and education, mm -hmm. but also for research and yeah. teaching and things like that. Uh, they recognise this, this project. Uh, earlier this month and gave him the uh, Geo Developer Award. Wow, congrats to Congratulations. Them. Should you give him a little round of applause? Yeah, why not? <laughs> Is that their champagne in the fridge then? <laughs> <laughs>
Actually, talking of uh, new and exciting ideas, I saw something quite cool the other day on Twitter, oh, yeah. which is this uh, World War Two tweet. Have you seen it? No, I don't think so, no. So I think the idea is this um, This guy called, uh, well, a Welsh name, Alwyn Collinson, I hope I've pronounced that right again, two in one show, <laughs> right. um, who uh, has had the idea of uh, kind of um, letting people relive the forgotten stories of, uh, of history. He's essentially going to live tweet the events of World War Two over yeah. the course of the next six years. Oh, what, day by day? Yes, exactly. So I think he started um, sometime in November, Mm-hmm. Um, so that was 1939, so we're talking 72 years ago. And yeah. then so as the six years roll on, he'll tweet every single day. Wow. So I think every day he spends uh, you know, a long time researching what he's going to do the next day because this isn't yeah, just big yeah. events. It's not just, you know, um, I don't know, Hitler invaded France or something. Yeah, yeah. There was a nice one where um, he tweeted, the UK war minister told Parliament of their first big victory in France. French brewers will now make English beer for troops. It's all like a really personal kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah viewpoint which I think is really nice is it going to be anything about you know when did bananas stop being available when did people start rationing powdered egg yeah exactly when did the price of stockings go up massively etc yeah Lana Turner visits London (laughs) I'm not doing Lana Turner is that the right period I don't know who she is it's her flag she's a film star and in our final bit of news uh, last episode we talked about the hand drawn map uh, project that was instituted by Alistair Lake and, mm-hmm. and Ian Morton, two other excellent MRA students on our course. Uh, and uh, what, what they did was they uh, were in the UCL cord with a big canvas. In the freezing cold. In the freezing cold, uh, not pouring rain, thankfully. Yes, exactly, <laughs> given that the canvas was done in pencil. Uh, yeah, oh god, that would be awful. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so they had this big canvas which had the outline of London and people drew on locations of London. So they drew on uh, landmarks where they lived, rivers parks, buildings, the whole thing. An arrow to China, I think, as well, featured. Yeah, so yeah, that was quite quite fun, actually. Everybody who wasn't from London or what didn't live in London had some arrow going Milan this way, you yeah. know, Barcelona slightly southeast. Back to their homes. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, all in all, there were 270 people contributed to this map. Uh, and uh, you can you can see the final results of that uh, online. We'll link to the website where that's been featured. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Um, please leave your comments tell us what you think uh, hopefully there'll be another opportunity to do that again in the future it'd be good if there was yeah yeah maybe we should make it an annual thing the yeah. annual CASA hand drawn map <laughs> if uh, Alastair and Ian haven't taken the copyright we'll have to watch over yeah, that of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's all the news for this week if you want to get in contact with us about anything that we've featured um, details will be given at the end of the show and next up you'll hear Martin who's been chatting this week to a very special guest Uh, so today I'm here with Stephen Lorimer from the Energy Institute. How are you today, Stephen? Yes, I'm very well. You should be very careful and call us the UCL Energy Institute. Oh, of course, As, yes. as there's somebody else that's called the Energy Institute, which existed for about 20 years. And we, oh, we, really? They, yes, they got very scared that we were stealing their name. So, uh, so um, you were telling me a moment ago about the, uh, the Energy Institute. It seems like a really fascinating uh, organisation, and it sits in... The Bartlett, which is the the faculty for for planning and for architecture, yes, but it brings in all kinds of different elements, doesn't it? Uh, it brings it all. Uh, it's in the Bartlett because of historic reasons, but they put they pull in building technologists and sociologists yeah. who, who who pull in why people want to use energy, what reasons they have for well, it, how what, they're using how, the buildings, how they use the buildings, and what their relationships with others is as well, and they they also pull in uh, environmental policy experts who are. are look at energy for instance 
And so these kind of three groups have been all put together. There's also a group of naval architects as well who investigate well, how much energy ships use really? as, they go, as they go around <laughs> the world. Wow. So there are kind of four distinct groups that are going, going on. That So within that sort of diverse mix, your interest is in energy demand, m- monitoring and understanding energy demand, is that right? I, I try to look at why people want to use electricity in their homes okay. for apl- what for appliances, electronics, lighting, etc. Isn't the majority of energy consumed by an individual household linked to its heating? Uh, Of course it is. Uh, About 80% of the the energy that we use has to do with heating. So why are you focusing on the the lighting and the the electrical aspect, Uh, the electronic aspects? Well, the reason for that is, 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 one, it's almost everyone else that you talk to in the Energy Institute talks about heating almost all the time. This type of energy is increased by about in the last 25 years by about 20 percent okay more or less even with all the insulation and different measures that so have been people taken are having time well they're making the houses hotter or uh they are uh and especially with the introduction of central heating uh the reason i'm looking at this electricity use is that over the same time period it's increased by about 150 percent wow so and a much larger increase in the way that people are using lighting and electrical items. So, so it went from something like five, six percent of all all energy being used to now over ten percent of all energy being used within within a household, well, it, in in the average household, if you will. Yeah, uh, and, and and is that something that you think is going to increase in the future? Uh, it's predicted by many different people to be to increase in the future. Uh, the the one of the latest estimates that in the next thirty years it will double. It will increase even faster wow. uh, than today. So, how have you tackled this problem? How does your research get into this this question? The the way that they did previously, which is a process, is called conditional demand analysis. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which, uh, which is let's estimate the number of devices, you know, a number of washing machines, one televisions, yeah. one, okay. you know, <laughs> etc., <Right. laughs> in yeah. every home, and say how many hours we think they'll run it, and then uh, therefore okay. how many. Uh, how, how many kilowatt hours get used yeah. they, in the 1980s they had a list of about 8 for poor people and about 12 for rich people Wow! <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't, a rich person wouldn't have two washing machines but they might have a dishwasher they must have a dishwasher right. yes okay. exactly uh, and, uh, and they might have a second television Ooh. Ooh. And, and by the time we got to the 1990s this, this kind of model was unsustainable because right. you, it was simply impossible to count the number of things that people had in their home to any kind of reliability yeah. over time. Okay. So what they went to is a much simpler model, which is let's just use the size of the household and that's uh, it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so I wanted to, to look at, well, let's go back to this idea of socioeconomic differences between uh, different people as well, but let's use areas instead of the individual houses themselves as the way to assess this. Oh, so using something like census data to estimate how many how much people are earning in that area? Is that the sort of idea? Uh, well, what I used was, I used a, I, I used something that was called area classification, okay. which yep. is a process that's, that's used by geographers to determine what areas within a country are similar to each other that okay. are not next to each other. So similar in, in what way? Uh, they're, uh, they're similar in what ways that the um, kind of how young or old the population right. is, uh, how many students there are, whether they commute by public transport, okay. uh, the, the, a- the average number of rooms that are, how big the houses are, uh, how, how economically active people are, okay. what kind of occupations they are, etc. There's kind of about 40 variables that they use. So in a sort of broad get- sense, it's like what type of person they are, if you like. Yeah, and so what the and and so they got to the point where they said, well, we've 
determined about 40 different groups and they have mm -hmm. very much those marketing titles attached to them. Oh, right. uh, some examples are called uh, farming and forestry, mature city professionals, right. multicultural sounds, urban. Sounds like a dating profile. Um, urban terracing, you know, all, uh, small town communities, you know, all, the, all, 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 all these places. That sounds very aspirational. And uh, and and what happened? And what I wanted to do was said, well, the way that you try to signify some of these differences between uh, different different classes, different income profiles, etc., yeah. might be might be if you actually know what kind of area these places are, uh, these homes yeah. that have had their energy monitored uh, atta attached to oh, them. So, you, so you're actually comparing some sort of monitoring of their consumption with these sort of broad social uh, characteristics. 45% uh, of the variance can be, of all the households in the UK is explained by just the area that they live in. Oh, really? And 55% is go beyond all those little averages into mm. the individual households themselves. So one of the ways you tried to sort of think about the behavioural aspect was this, this project you took part in, which sounded to me like a sort of energy consumption big brother house. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, I, yes, the, the participants definitely did say the word big brother back to me <laughs> a, a couple of times. Uh, there, uh, there was a project I got involved in, which was actually um, a, a, a summer architecture school in Hamburg, Germany, okay. where we had about 25 uh, architects who were very interested in sustainability and design and very active in these things. They were there for two weeks, and their primary purpose of being there was to work on sustainable design projects and working with the, the local community that was there. The health centers building that they had, the, we just turned bits of it into dormitories. Okay. We uh, had a workspace at one side. And there, were, there was, uh, what I decided to do was that there was uh, two specific work days where I said, I'm gonna do this very intensively. And the standard way of doing things intensively in the energy field is measuring every half an hour. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so does and, that mean you had to get up every half an hour? And walk around and look at all the oh, plug monitors. Couldn't and you see. have automated it somehow? That must have... If we, bought more, uh, if we bought more expensive plug monitors, yes. So did you see any particularly surprising behaviours uh, over the course of the... the, the it was two weeks of the project, wasn't it? It, it was, it was over, over two weeks as it went along. Well, uh, what, what happened in this intensive day is that you... You saw almost immediately people were very surprised by very basic things such as, oh wow, the projector uses a lot of electricity. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's a big lamp. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> exactly. so you were actually going in on these days and pointing certain things out to them, saying well, this is a, an energy use. Well, this is a, a presentation came through at, after the first intensive day, which they had no idea what the hell I was doing. It's like ah, this guy so walking around. They just saying, saw you sort of wandering around. Wandering around, yeah. saying, well, whatever he's doing, I don't know what he's doing. And I said, well, this is what was happening during the day. And this is, hmm. uh, this is the use of your computers during the work time. And then we had dinner. And then it went straight back to where it was before, well, as we, everyone we, back went back on Facebook or Skype or whatever. Well, so people are taking a little break over dinner, but otherwise they're using their computers as much in the evenings as when they're working. Yes. That's a, that says a lot about the 21st century, doesn't it? It does say, uh, <laughs> especially a, lot, a bunch of 25-year-old master students, oh, yes, God, uh, yeah. That, yeah. that is very true. My temperature monitors that said, well, they all went to bed and just left the heating on in the workspaces oh. all day. And, that's, the, that's the worst thing when you have housemates. If you if you live in a shared house, you assume that somebody else will do it. Yeah, but also, if it, but when <laughs> when people don't 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 turn the heating off, you get really angry because it's really expensive to run the heating online. It is, yeah. The other weird thing that happened on that Monday is somebody said to me, "I won't lie to you. After I went out on Saturday night, 
I just came home on Sunday and just sat in the shower for two hours. I was so exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and I actually hadn't thought about it that much. But I said, well, let's let's see if I can isolate what's going on with the hot water use of all these people having hot showers. Of these people having hot showers on Saturday. Saturday was this um, was a party that was called the Schausenfest in in Hamburg, which is basically a huge street party. Alcohol being sold by street vendors everywhere. Yeah, I'd say the the most common price, which you call the mode of um, of a bottle of beer, would be about a euro. Wow, that's, <laughs> ch- that's very cheap. And, and uh, I'd say the the most common price for a cocktail would be about a, a euro seventy or or something like that. I think I should go to this festival. It sounds like fun. <laughs> and uh, and and so I, and and so you imagine that people went out mm. and you know they were they were they were having a good time buying Took advantage up, of the buying uh, up the street alcohol etc yeah. yes and so what happened with the hot water heaters it, hot water is that it went up to about 25 during uh, that time okay. which is about okay. double of a normal normal weekday there's <laughs> <laughs> so a pretty clear sign that that hangovers not only harm you but they harm the environment so if you want to find out more about Stephen's uh, research, you can do so on his, uh, his UCL profile. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes uh, this episode. Um, and so it just remains for me to say thank you very much, Stephen. Well, thank you for having me over. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, it's just whizzed by, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. absolutely. Yeah, that's Martin. Like that. <laughs> that it has. That it has. So, if there's anything you'd like to get in touch with us about that we featured in the episode, you can get in contact with us via our website, thegloballab.com, Twitter, at thegloballab, or email, theoldfashionedthegloballab at gmail.com. And so, that's all for this episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye.